0: Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about something we talked about about a month ago, a little bit over a month ago, Mephibosheth. Now, we looked briefly at it, and it was great, but we didn't go into the kind of depth that I think that would help. So we're going to take the next 20 or so minutes, and we're going to look again at Mephibosheth. So 2 Samuel chapter 9, if you have your Bible. Now, again, what's the story? The backdrop is King David is now to have the time of peace, and he's looking over his kingdom. The, The kingdoms are no longer divided. They are now one. He is the wealthiest guy. He's taken this thing from, he's taken this kingdom of Israel from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles virtually overnight. And now he's reigning. There's relative peace. There's always a battle here and there that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 8. There's some skirmishes on the outside, but for given the time and the place, this is an extraordinary time in the life of King David. And then we get this story, seemingly out of nowhere. And seemingly doesn't even fit in. And I'm, I've got to be honest with you. If uh, that first uh, worship song that we did, uh, that was in Hebrew, was was part. They partnered with One for Israel. We're very involved. If you don't know, we're very involved in the Jewish community in Israel who loves Jesus. called Messianic Jews. And the seminary there, we're very involved as a church with that seminary. Many of you have heard Dr. Saref. They come in from Israel and he'll speak to us usually once a year or something. Or somebody from the seminary will come and talk to us about what's going on in the Middle East as it relates to Jesus. And when I think about this story and then I think about the Orthodox Jewish community today or just any, even a secular Jew who may not even know really the Bible at all, even the Old Testament, they would consider the Old Testament, God's Word and some, most most of your Jewish friends are probably secular anyway, maybe not even practicing, but especially those that have some sense of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how you could come to a story like this and not see out of this emerge the very gospel that the New Testament completely brings to life. And one of the things I've hoped you've seen over these last number of weeks is don't you see the gospel coming to bear over and over and over and over again? Even, in the, even for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought back into the city, you see the gospel is just being screened from the pages of the Old Testament, which was clearly, and again, I say this all the time because we talk from the Old Testament all the time, completely codified in advance of Jesus. That's important. Why is that important? Because there's there's just a general sense in which most people think Christianity is just some kind of hybrid thing that emerged hundreds of years after the fact, and we don't even know if Jesus really lived. The Jesus Seminar, who came together a number of years back, came together and many came to the conclusion that Jesus probably didn't even exist. He's just a figment of the imaginations of people. And a lot of people in our culture just buy into that without really having done the legwork that you need to do to see Jesus emerging from the pages of the Old Testament well in advance of his time. And here again, we're going to see a beautiful picture. And I want to go more in depth. So let's read the story. 2 Samuel says, then David said, is there yet anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, why is that important? Because in 1 Samuel chapter 20, I think it's around 13, 14, and 15, those verses, it's very important to know that Jonathan already knew he could see the jig was up for his own father, and yet it wasn't even done yet, but he knew that the anointing or the presence of God, if you will, was with David and had departed his own father. He knew what was coming. And essentially what he's saying is that even though I am the heir apparent to the current throne, there will be a day, I know, David, that you become the king of Israel. I should be in terms of the line, but you will be because the anointing of God is on you. And he asked David simply in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 13, 14, 15, he simply says, he says, David, will you be sure and remember my house when you come into your kingdom Don't forget me. And David, because he's a man of integrity and a great leader. What's a great leader? A great leader is a man or a woman who keep their word. That's what a great leader is. Who makes valiant plans, noble plans, and by noble plans, he or she stands. And then they make those plans, and through that, they make promises and covenants, and through those covenants, they promise that they're going to execute on them. And this is exactly what's happening here. Now, you'll have to remember in 2 Samuel chapter 4, through the process of that uh, death on on Mount Gilboa, what had happened is they came together and and they immediately knew the nursemaid for Mephibosheth, who was the son of David, immediately knew that Mephibosheth would be killed because that's the way it operated back then. If somebody died... If somebody in the throne died or they were taken over or something happened and then another throne rose up to be in place of that, they were going to go and systematically wipe out, kill, exterminate the family before them because they didn't want any rivals. And so Mephibosheth at only age of five was going to have to run for his life. Second Samuel chapter 4 says, verse 4, it says that he came together and he was only five and the nurse grabbed him when they got word that Jonathan and Saul were dead and headed for the hills. And in the process, evidently she took a fall or something happened and Mephibosheth was now lamed in both feet, couldn't walk at all. It was, I mean, we're talking, you know, this guy, uh, wheelchair, you know, I mean, just couldn't get around at all. He was he was saying, and in that culture in that time, that was—it's not—it's bad enough in our culture, but in that place and that time, that's bad. And you put on top of the fact that he's lame, and now he's going to have to run for the rest of his life to hide from King David, who clearly will want to exterminate him, or so they thought. Not much of a life. And now here David is, unbeknownst. Now Mephibosheth had been hiding from David for God knows how long, at least enough to where Mephibosheth had had a son named Micah. So it had been 20 plus years now in hiding. And then David emerges and he goes, "Uh, is there anybody that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Now that word in the Hebrew actually means grace. Is there anybody that I can show grace to? Somebody who doesn't deserve it, can't possibly earn it. Not possible. And no way can they ever repay it. Now, let me say that again. This is important. They, can't, they do not deserve it. This is what grace is. Somebody does you wrong, they don't deserve to be, uh, for this sin to be overlooked, and yet you overlook it. They don't deserve it. They can't possibly earn it, and they'll never be able to repay it. Now, that's true, true grace, true grace. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, or Ziba can be pronounced. And by the way, many of these names are hard because you can find and pronounce in different ways. We'll say Ziba. And they called to him David and the king and says, are you Ziba? And he says, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not yet anyone in the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, well, there's still a son of Jonathan who's crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, and the son of Amiel, and Lodabar, from Lodabar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir to the son of Amiel from Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of David, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. Now stop for a second. Now this is an unbelievable scene. First of all, it's, it, it's instructive for us, this whole world, there's a little bit of disagreement among theologians, but most theologians agree that the name Mephibosheth at least resonates with this feeling of shame. Most say it actually means just shame, Mephibosheth, shame. And where is he? He's in Lodabar or Lodibar, Lodabar. He's in Lodabar. What does that mean? Lod means no, and debar means pasture. He's in a place where there aren't any pastures. Now, I find that fascinating, especially if I'm a Jewish person and I'm going back and reading this in the context of the Christ event, and I'm I'm starting to see all this. Where is he? He is in hiding because of shame in a place with no pastures, a dry place, a desolate place, Lodabar. Can you imagine? I mean, just think about this for a second. Here you are having been in hiding for probably over two decades. And here you are out in the middle of nowhere in a dry and barren place. And you're crippled. If things couldn't get bad enough, if things couldn't be any worse. And here you see this entourage coming from Jerusalem and they're clearly David's men. Your sense is very simple. (laughs) Well, I didn't think I'd last this long anyway. My time is up. It's my time to go. At least, you know, at least I was able to live long enough to have a son. And here he comes, and David's men come, and what does he do? He prostrates himself. And said, these three words, can you imagine? These are, these are even more important than you won the lottery. Do not fear. Those three, think about those three words for a second. You know you're, the gig's up. It's over. They've come to take you. That should have happened years ago. And now, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Now, see, this is another picture of grace. It's important to see. And why is that so important? Because it was nothing he had done at all. It was on behalf of something somebody else had done, in this case, his father. There was nothing, not anything that Mephibosheth had done to deserve anything, But because of a covenant made with somebody else, he goes free. Now, that would be good enough. I continue to live in no pasture land. I mean, at least I continue to live. Maybe I even grow old enough to see my son Micah have some kids. This is unbelievable news. I cannot imagine. Can you imagine the sweat? I mean, that would be like, you know, somebody in court finding out. I, I, have, that's, talk about intense drama. When you see these court scenes and their actual live stuff and you're there and the jury and finally they come in and it's been a two or three months trial and they come in, you know, and the, and the lady has to stand up and on, a, on this account and this account, the jury finds. And right there, your whole future rests on guilty or not guilty right there. I've always wondered what that's got to feel like. It's got to be staggering. Some people just pass out. They they fall to the ground in tears uh, either one way or the other. And yet, this was another one of those circumstances. He says, don't fear. I'm going to restore. Now, listen to what he says. I'm going to show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan, but it doesn't end there. And I'm going to restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul. Are you kidding me? Saul was king. How much land do you think he had? We don't know exactly, but it had to be unbelievable. He went from a place of probably poverty and hiding to a place of owning everything. That'd be like saying, Hey, I'm going to give you the Annenberg estate, and I'm going to give you, you know, the vintage club's going to be yours, and and we're going to go over here, and you can have this, and and, uh, McCallum Theater, all that's yours now, and uh, here's all this money, and here's all And, and But it doesn't end there all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you will eat at my table regularly. So not only am I going to give you something and spare your life, not only am I going to spare your life, I'm going to give you more than you ever could fathom, and now catch this, I'm going to also remove your shame because I'm going to give you dignity because I'm going to allow you to eat at my own table. I'm not just going to give you something and then turn my back and never see you again. I'm going to ask you to come, move to Jerusalem, and I'm going to ask you to eat at my table every single day. And again, he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? See, something about Mephibosheth, which is phenomenal, is that he recognized the actual plight that he was in. I find in my own experience, people fall off the horse on one side or the other. It's kind of like, well, you know, I kind of deserve to be, I'm a good guy, you know. God's been probably pretty easy for God to save me because, you know, I've been pretty good my whole life. I mean, I run into those people all the time. You know, my life has been good. I've, and they, they generally, because they compare themselves among themselves, and Paul told the Corinthian church, he said, you're not wise at all. If you're comparing yourselves among yourselves, there's no wisdom in that. Compare yourself to God, and then you'll get a right perspective. And, of course, the other side of the horse, other people fall off and say, I've been so bad, and I am so beaten up, there's no way God could ever possibly love me. And, you know, you find both. And to be honest with you, it's the ones that says there's no way God could possibly love me that the gospel makes the most sense to. The story I'm about to tell you requires you to recognize yourself as a dead dog. You say, well, I'm offended by that. Well, so am I. But deep down, it resonates with me because I've lived with me for 54 years. I've lived in my head. I know what goes on in my head and has gone on. I know the pain I've inflicted, and I am quite sure that I have inflicted great pain on people that I am completely and totally unaware of. I have no doubt in my junior high and high school years that I created a lot of pain for a lot of people. And by the way, if you just happen to be tuning in on a live stream, I'm really sorry for that. <laughs> See, this is the picture. Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, 35 people working for him like that. Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, I will do. And so, Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So he lived in Jerusalem, he ate at the king's table regularly. By the way, now he was lame in both feet. I love the ending to this story, this chapter. And oh, by the way, remember, he was lame in both feet. Well, first of all, I find a few things fascinating, and I'm going to ask Rick Winslow to come up here in a second. But I find some things fascinating. I think this is risky business on David's part, don't you? I mean, if he were to bring back in Mephibosheth, and then say there was some stuff that he didn't know about, maybe some uh, a little coup d'état that was beginning to bubble up that he was unaware of. Clearly, Mephibosheth would be a descendant in the line and potentially, even though layman both feet, potentially he could or maybe one of his kids, Micah, could take David's position if enough of the old Sauline forces had actually pulled out and began to gravitate around and say, we don't like David's rule, we don't like what he's instituting, we don't like this. And so it was a little bit of risky business on his part. But can I, ask you, can I ask you this? Isn't it a little bit risky business on God's part to bring you into the kingdom? I think it's very risky that he brought me into the kingdom. Because I also know that he, he knew my background and he knew that I would probably, uh, it would take me a while to be sanctified. And by the way, when we come together like a church body like this, can I just tell you there are some that have been walking with Jesus for 30 or 40 years and they're much more like Jesus today than they were 30 or 40 years ago. And there are some that are just coming in that we're going to be baptizing even on August 6th. They're going to be brand new babies, born again, just born into the kingdom, didn't know anything about anything. And they still got all their old ways. they got their old ways of thinking about things. They haven't been sanctified, purified by the word, washing over their mind week after week after week. They've got a lot of maybe trust issues because they've been around people that have treated them Really poorly, and now they come into a family that ostensibly will treat them well and love them like God loves them and allow God's presence to live in them and then love them through their bodies, which is also done imperfectly. It's risky business to bring anybody to your table. This guy might be your enemy more than your support level here. Risky business. I find it also fascinating that in some ways, as you can see, hopefully by now, we are all Mephibosheth. Can you see that? We're all lame. In terms of eating at God's table, and yet Jesus said in Luke 22 verse 30, there's going to be a day where you all going to be come and eat at my table. Revelation 19 talks about this amazing feast that's going to happen, and we're all going to be eating together. It's any party you've ever experienced. The greatest of the greatest parties you've ever experienced will look ridiculous compared to the party that God will throw at the culmination of redemptive history when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom and all those who have believed as Mephibosheth that, yes, I am lame, I am ashamed, but I will eat at your table, even though I'm a dead dog, because you have extended your grace to me, completely undeserved, completely. I'll never be able to repay it. And, of course, I never could have earned it anyway, and yet I eat at your table. So can you see that in many ways we are all Mephibosheth? But in some ways, and this is what I want to ask you today too, where are you? Are you, do you recognize that you're Mephibosheth or not? And if you don't, I'd love for you to embrace the concept. Do you live in shame here this morning? Are there places of your life that are dark and you just don't want to go there and you just know that God knows it but nobody else does? Maybe you're even willing to come to church and dress up and look around and kind of be part of it, but deep down you've got such a shame complex that you just feel like God's got to be ticked off at you. From this story, I'll tell you with the full confidence of Scripture in tandem with the rest of the narrative of Scripture, He's not. He's not. Because all the wrath that was due you was put upon Jesus 2,000 years ago. He's inviting you to his table. But secondly, in some ways, God is calling all of us to be David, to show the grace. Those that had been extended grace, show grace. See, we're not just Mephibosheth. We're Mephibosheth when we come in and we know that, you know, we're there. And by the way, when your family around a table, can I just say there's something beautiful about sitting at a table? Not this table, but a larger table that covers. Can I just say, when Mephibosheth was there, nobody could see the, that he was lame. There's one thing about family. He said, I don't care about your background. I don't care where you've been. I don't care the troubled roads that you've traveled. I don't care. Because we've all traveled to some degree troubled roads. Yeah, maybe yours was worse. Maybe it was more dramatic. Maybe you spent time in jail. Maybe you spent. Maybe you've been divorced five times. Maybe you. Maybe you're have irreconcilable differences with your own kids. Doesn't matter. At the table of grace, we can't deserve it, earn it, or repay it. We all just come, and we come in all crippled up and lame, and we just pull up to the table. And Jesus says, "The table's for you." You know, we're gonna have going to have a little bit of communion later. That's what the table is. That's what what coming to the Lord's table is. We're a bunch of Mephibosheths, but we're also called to be David. Go out into a hurting world and show the kindness and grace by allowing me to inhabit your body. If all that's true, and I'm telling you it is on the full authority of Scripture, if all that's true, let's hear it from a few of my friends. Rick Winslow, could you make your way down here? Um, I would like to share this, uh, just his life, a little bit. And hang on one second here. So these were randomly selected for no particular purpose other than uh, they're all my friends, and I know a little bit about their stories. So I ask Rick just to come up, and I'm just going to ask him a few questions about his life, and and he's gonna he's gonna fill us in a little bit. Okay, so Rick, now you've been a you've been a dear friend of mine for a long time, but especially since we launched this church. What I'd like to do, big, burly, strong, tall guy, tell us a little bit. <laughs> He's a good stick too. He's about a, I don't know, scratch handicap guy. You know, good, very good player. Uh, tell us a little bit when you when you hear this this story of Mephibosheth. Does any of this resonate with you? And if so, how? And then tell us a little bit about your story. Well, I, I first
1: of all, this feels like the first tee of a big tournament, and <laughs> I'm I'm in front of everybody, and I got to hit a golf ball. How's that feel? Jeff? It's
0: it's it's uh, it's a little scary sometimes, but. I promise you won't top it because your Holy testimony is your empowered. testimony. Right? Your testimony is your testimony.
1: You got what you got. That's right. Well, I uh, the story to me resonates in that I am welcome at the table.
0: Yeah,
1: and I I learned that uh, I was accepted, and I fully, after acceptance, uh, faith has not never been an issue for me. So. It's been it's been an easy walk as far as faith. I've never felt that God has ever left me alone. Hmm. But walking in obedience yeah. is
0: is the is the daily battle as we spoke this week. Sure. So when did you when did the, th- your faith journey happen? Did you grow up around church? Did you
1: were you around it? Oh no, it? no. Uh, you know we went to church a couple times as kids. My mom and dad, you know. Uh, have been married uh, until my dad passed away about 10 years ago. So I always had a mom and dad, and I had a brother, a younger brother. And my mom took us to church once in a while, but, but nothing ever really happened other than, you know, I got involved with some, with a, like a youth basketball group when I was probably mm-hmm. 10, 11, 12.
0: Yeah. I know you've had a passion for that even here at church. And at that
1: time, there was a, a guy leading that, and that ended, and that guy would have been a guy that if he could have grabbed me, I think he would have saved me, I don't know, 20 years of living in the world that I had to live through after that.
0: Right, right.
1: So, fast forward, um, I meet my wife, my future wife, Denise, who's still my wife. (laughs) Thank God. At
0: least it was this morning.
1: Yes, and uh, of course, we start dating, and then you know, go a year later, two years later, we move in together and then we buy a house together. Well, by the way, we're not married yet. That's not happening. And we're just trying to figure it out. Um, Her brother, who is a very godly man, David Reynolds, thank you, was on us. And how he got on us was he invited us to go to an Amway meeting. (laughs)
0: first time I've ever heard that before
1: and he says oh Rick you can do this come do this and I sit down I go with a friend of mine one of my lifelong friends Ron Hayes and and he's kind of in the same position I am and we both go and they draw circles and we're (laughs) like we can do this I go home and I tell Denise and she was not happy at all but being what she is she says okay we'll do this and so we started going to these amway things and amway had a group at that time called worldwide that was a teaching group and that was really their faith-based business and what they would do is is they would have a, a quarterly function and at one of these quarterly functions i had friends all around me all the time rick come on come on come on as i like to say they were trying to sell fire insurance to me and i'm like i don't need any fire insurance everybody that's everybody that needs you know God is weak and and they, they need a crutch. I don't need a crutch. I can do this thing on my own so one of those functions a guy named Jimmy head on a Sunday morning April 20th 1997 Wow at 10 45 a.m. I think Wow I heard the fire ins- insurance call mm. I felt um the hand of jesus on my shoulder and then i felt my brothers on my shoulder wow and then i felt my wife next to me and we accepted the lord that day
0: wow and we've been
1: in mess ever since
0: that's (laughs) well one thing i know about you brother is that you uh through the mess you do have a heart to serve him and to please him and as a community we come around you and your family which we love cam riley and everybody uh just to say we want to see you move into the fullness of what god has called you and your family and denise together to do and can't wait to look at the future and so look we all struggle would you you know we all got our stuff we all man there's moments of high faith and moments that you wonder if you God's even ask you to the table at all And you just get up and you say, no, I trust that Jesus was enough. Well, brother, thank you for sharing your story. That is awesome. We love you, brother. Now, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to take this, and I want you to take a seat at the table, all right, if you wouldn't mind. just right. You get to be right here at the table. And I'm going to ask Lynn Jupina if she doesn't mind to come down. And uh, so we have one Mephibosheth at the table, and uh, I'm going to make the fourth, by the way. We have our uh, second now, just for those of you who don't know Lynnjaa, uh, there's a good chance that this church may not exist uh, without Lynnjaa. Why? Because early on when I started in ministry, when we had nothing going, Lynn was the one that says, "No, you got she was she's been Laura, some of Lauras and I our greatest supporter and encourager and all that through the years, and we are desperate to know, although we're happy for her future, that she's going to be leaving the desert. So we, uh, she's going to be moving back to uh, Atlanta to live with some people that we know very well, Tom and his wife, at least for a little while until she finds a place. Anyway, that's another story. But Lynn, we love you. And what we you want to know from you is when you hear this story of Mephibosheth, does that resonate with you? And then tell us a little bit about your story because you have such a passion for ministry. It's just unbelievable. And seeing people come to know Jesus.
2: Well, it does um, resonate with me. And one of my favorite uh, poems is by Ruth Arms Calkin, And it says, Father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth and am no longer worthy to be called your child. Yes, I know my child, but I am forever worthy to be called your Savior. Mm, And I just love that. And I was born and raised in a Christian home. And uh, we were a very gentle, tender family. Um, we went to church every Sunday. Um, my father was as a um, head of the men's department. My mother was the head of the junior department, and we were what people would call the salt of the earth. Well, then, when I was about 16, everything began to change, mm-hmm. and my mother was crying all the time, and uh, she was in and out of hospitals, and you know, I didn't know what was going on. It was like everything was changing. And then I came home from school one day, and I was told that she fell down the steps and hit her head and was in a coma. And so she was in a coma for three and a half months, and then she died. Well, you know, we had weathered storms before, and Mm -hmm. I thought we would weather this one. But unfortunately, um, things just started going haywire. Uh, My father started drinking, and I couldn't understand why that was happening. My one brother left the house, and my other brother was doing his internship in New York. And I didn't know what was going on. Well, I found out later that my mother had taken her life. And that changed everything. And then my father was drinking. So I thought, well, you know what? My father's drinking. He doesn't care enough. My mother killed herself. She doesn't care. So surely the Lord couldn't love me. So I started looking Mm. for love everywhere. Mm. And there was a song out at the time called Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places, and that's what I did. Mm. And then I was down in Florida, and my brother and sister-in-law were strong Christians, and we were driving, and we'd just gotten back from church. And every time we would go to church and there would be an altar call, I just wanted to go forward so much. But I thought, no, you're going to have to give up your lifestyle, or you're going to have to, you know, do all this. And I mean, I was a very nervous, frightened person, and nobody knew it. Um, They all thought, my one friend said to me one time, you know, you always seem so confident and everything, and it's not till you get to know you that you know you're so messed up. (laughs) So anyhow, he turned around to me, and he said, you know, you're never going to be happy until you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And he said, if you don't mind, he said, I'm going to have this friend of ours call you, and they're going to take you to church on Sunday. And I was going back to Pittsburgh, and I said, okay, to keep the peace, I'll go to church. Well, we went to church, and Pastor Danny Crow was going through Exodus, and we went through, it to, through Exodus for about 40 years. <laughs> and um, he was talking about drinking at the wrong wells. Mm. And I thought, my brother called him. I know he called him. <laughs> And this couple that had taken me to church took me out for dinner or for lunch afterwards. And there were two things I needed to hear. Um, The one, the wife said to me, you know, everybody loved your mother. And the second one was from her husband who said, you were the apple of your father's eye. Wow. And I just really needed to hear that. So that uh, Wednesday, I went to... um, meet with the pastor I accepted Jesus as my lord and savior I was baptized a couple weeks later wait a
0: minute so you had been going to church for a long time but now you're saying you have this moment where you said right I'm actually asking Jesus to come and inhabit me
2: yes exactly exactly you know cuz I was you know I thought I knew Jesus I knew him in my mind but he wasn't really inside of me or inhabiting me so um, And I was, I had been smoking two and a half packs of cigarettes a day. I was a nervous wreck. I would have panic attacks. And when I would drive to school, I couldn't go through this one tunnel. And so after I was, you know, baptized and everything, I thought, okay, we're driving, and I'm gonna go through that tunnel. Hmm. And there was an Amy Grant song on, and we started driving through the tunnel, and an 18-wheeler jackknifed in front of us And I was stuck in that tunnel for an hour, but no panic attack.
3: Wow, wow. So,
2: and then, you know, I still had messes in my life that needed cleaned up, but then we came down here, and I remember Jeff talking about the deserts that we have to go through sometimes to get to the promised land, and there were a lot of deserts to go through, but then finally reached the promised land, thanks to your teachings, Hmm. so...
0: You're awesome. We well, love, you. I love you. We too. love you so much. You. You, if we only have another month or so, or however long we have, mm-hmm. you need to get to know her. So you yeah. you need to stay around. Don't leave early. Just stay around out there so people can come up and get to know you a little bit because you have had a profound impact on our lives.
2: Well, Offer food. I'll come. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Would, uh, Lynn, would you please take a seat at the table? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Oli, come on this way, Oli. Uh, Oli is, uh, is on our, many of you know that I still serve as president of Lynx Players International. We have about 250 groups that meet around the country, fellowships that meet at country clubs and golf related facilities. It's kind of a golf ministry, which sounds kind of odd. But that's been the genesis in many ways of this church. Now, many of you have come on now, but especially the, a lot of the folks who aren't here too, when we started, we, we didn't start with just 50. We started with about 300 people, and then we've been growing. But a lot of that was came out of that ministry. That's how we came to know Oli, and Oli is now actually serving on that board. And I know Oli has a, uh, as a, a very interesting background, Minnesota, attorney, Uh, Oli, uh, when you hear this story of Mephibosheth, does this resonate with you? And if so, tell us a little bit about your story and kind of where you are on your journey.
3: It it resonates loud, Hmm. loudly and clearly. Uh, The whole notion that uh, someone who thought he was probably going to be wiped out Hmm. uh, can now sit At the table is is an awesome story. It is an awesome story. It's an awesome story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know that my story is like his, but my story is like the prodigal son. Hmm. Uh, Much like the prodigal son, I thought I knew what was best for me. I walked away from the father, uh, lived a life that squandered everything that I ever had, uh, spiritually, uh, emotionally, and in the depths of despair. Hmm. I decided, realized, uh, that I had to come back.
0: And he took me. And this is in the middle of a successful career. Oh. Tell us a little bit about your career.
3: Well <sighs> let me just preface that by Please saying, do. you know, I, I, I like Lynn, I grew up in a very, very Christian household. Went to church every Sunday, <laughs> Sunday school confirmation. I preached sermons on Youth Sunday. Uh on the outward side, people thought I was a Christian, but I had my parents' faith. I, I didn't know Jesus. I, I knew what Jesus was. And then I go off to college, and all of a sudden, I don't have to get up at 7.30 in the morning mm-hmm. to go to church, and I don't have to do this, and I don't have to do that. And religion became an academic exercise. And part of that, trying to figure out why God would allow someone, uh, an innocent child, to die, and, and the academics that were there. And so I just decided I was going to be the commander of my own boat. I was going to be in control, and I was mm. just going to do it. And along the way, I thought, you know, if I, you know, if I if I graduate in the top of my class, I'll get into a good law school. If I do well in law school, I'll get in a big firm. And if I get in a big firm, I'll make money, and I'll be par- a partner, and I'll have this fame and that fortune, and I'll have a big house, and I'll have a country club, and I'll be a single digit handicap, <laughs> and I'm going to be the happiest guy in the world. Well, by my early to mid-40s, I'm not happy. Hmm. And I'm not one of the other seven dwarfs either. Um, <laughs> and and there was this emptiness. I mean, and I started saying, well, I I thought this was gonna make me happy. I thought this was gonna be what it was all about. And I started saying, There's gotta be more. There's gotta be more than this. And about the same time, there were three of my golfing buddies who were a little bit younger than I was, but I kept looking at them. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm troubled inside. There's turmoil, um, despair starting to set in. And I'm seeing these three guys, and we play golf all the time, and I'm thinking, you know what? They have, I think, what I'm missing. Wow. They have it. And I think I know what it is, but I'm not sure. Now, little did I know, behind the scenes, for three years, these guys prayed over me.
0: Wow, wow.
3: Uh, they just kept pray- And they, they'd pull me to this, you know, prayer breakfast. They'd pull me to this Bible study. I got, I got kicked out of BSF one time. I was out there kicking tires and trying to figure out and, and many false starts along the way. But I thought, I need it. Hmm. And you remember 1997. I remember June 1st, 2001 at 8.30 in the morning. Minnesota town, Tom Lehman had just done a breakfast Mm. and he'd given his story and Tom
0: Lehman was my hero. He's a partner of our Lynx players through the Mm. years on the cover of the magazines loves Jesus
3: fantastic man, and at 830 when he did the call
2: Mm.
3: It just washed over me and That was the change Hmm. That was when I gave my life to Jesus, and that was the it. Wow, it's good. Thanks, brother.
0: Yep. Take a seat at the table. I hope you. I hope you see. There's a. There's a consistency here. There's a sameness here. Church kind of grew up around it. Not so much grew up around church, been to church, going, doing that, But somehow, some, 1997, 2001, Lentz time, all of a sudden, God, I got the it. I love that. And the it was the Holy Spirit it. That's what it is. And it come and flood their body. Live on the inside of them. Christ in you is the hope of glory. This is so profound, so simple, and yet so complex. How can the creator of the cosmos come down and live on the inside of me? It's everything Jesus did. That's the story we get from Mephibosheth. There's nothing he did. There was a covenant made with somebody else. Somebody else paid the price, his own father. David the king honors the covenant and says, come in. Now, what good thing can I do for you? And I promise you, Jesus wants to do things much better than just give you land or give you something temporal. He's willing to give you eternal life, the ability to eat at his table forever. So what, and I'll, and I'll add myself, so what keeps us from sitting and taking a place at the table? What would keep you from taking a place at this table? Shame? No way. That's Mephibosheth's name. Can't be shame. Lame? You don't know how lame I am. Can't be lame. But it covers everything. And then this table, were it bigger with a big cloth and everything, it would cover pretty much all of our stuff. And here we are, our dignity restored. We were created in His image. The fall happened, and now we've been recreated in His image and given our dignity back. Now, who could turn that down? We say, well, I don't believe. Most of the time, a lot of times, deep down, there are fears. So we're going to close with this song about fear, because fear is a thief. If fear has been keeping you out of the kingdom because you think you're not good enough, let's close with this. And then I'm going to ask everybody, today's communion day, right? I'm not missing this, isn't it? Right, okay. So I want everybody to go upstairs if you'd like to. Go upstairs. If you've never been upstairs, you can take the elevator. You can take the stairs upstairs, and then we'll share the Lord's table through the remembrance of him through the covenant and blood and his body. All right? So let's listen to this, and then we'll close.